One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. funny thing is now i and i tend to see commercial breaks on movies more often than i do on tv shows Mm -hmm. because of like tubi and the other free movie apps where i'm watching stuff and they'll just chop in commercial breaks Mm -hmm. whereas when i watch tv it's something like netflix where it's no ads at all yeah so that that shit's just reversed in my brain now yeah it's so weird like they try to drop the ads at kind of appropriate times in the movies, like after like a big scene, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll drop in the break. And so it makes the movie structure feel more like TV. Yeah. While on Netflix, they've they've so gotten rid of the whole act and, mm-hmm. you know, break structure mm-hmm. from like network TV. It feels it, like a movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it so feels weird. more like a movie than movies. Though. Oh, my gosh. That's so strange. Yeah. I still stand by my assertion that George Miller should direct an adaptation of the first and only, hopefully, Trump term. Oh my God. Can you imagine if Miller and his wife got a hold of that? Well, I think what's so brilliant about this idea of yours, man, is Miller is maybe the only person whose style is exaggerated it, enough. Exactly. For you to for it to actually feel the way it felt exactly. when you were going through it, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. need like him or like Paul Verhoeven. You need somebody. Oh, there you who go. Is mm-hmm. gonna take this so far out of reality that it'll be like, oh yeah, this is actually how it feels. Yep. You know. Yep. Because it's like trying to satirize Trump on like Saturday Night Live. It's a non-starter. Right. It, it, there's you know. Just doesn't it, work. It's just not nearly extreme enough to even count as comedy you're just saying what happened yesterday Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know (laughs) oh my gosh yeah i I think it's him yeah i I really do think so clearly that's not going to happen but i can wish and i can dream right right i mean let's get the next mad max first and then we'll talk you know (laughs) (laughs) as soon as he's done doing this genie movie with uh tilda swinton and idris elba (laughs) what is that yeah like what yeah now are they both genies who, who's the genie? I couldn't like hold on. Let me look up and see here, because I could definitely see Tilda Swinton being in love with a genie. I could see her, you know, lusting after a genie. But mm-hmm. I could definitely also see her being the a genie. malevolent wishmaster. Oh, you know? totally, yeah. yeah, totally. Idris Elba the genie though. I don't know. I don't know. Does he seem like the type who would fall for a genie? He really doesn't. He seems like somebody who pretty much grants his own wishes, you know? That's <laughs> like. I, <laughs> I love that. Right? Oh my God. No, it's Idris Elba who is the genie. Huh. Wow. So the yeah. premise is a lonely and bitter British woman. This is the film 3,000 Years of Longing. Mm-hmm. A lonely and bitter British woman discovers an ancient bottle while on a trip to Istanbul and unleashes a djinn who offers her three wishes. Yeah. Filled with apathy, she is unable to come up with one until his stories spark in her a desire to be loved. What? That's weird, man. I don't know. 
what if what if the first human being you saw out of your genie bottle Tilda imprisonment Swinton. was Tilda Swinton? Tilda Swinton. I wouldn't like, know what Whoa. to make it. Are you all this intense now? <laughs> like what happened to you? What human happened beings? while I was gone? Right. That's that's what you have to ask immediately. Right. Exactly. This seems way more well adjusted. That's true. <laughs> And he's a magical being who's been trapped in a lamp or whatever. He's just like, wait, what's going on here? Right. Well, I will uh, see it in theaters. Right. I'm First mean, in line. It's Miller, man. We got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Uh, All right. Oh Should we get, get into, into this? All right. Let's yeah. do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. So glad to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host. You can see his life story depicted in the 2016 film, The Greasy Strangler, Mr. Alex Sinesi. How uh, you doing, man? I'm going to have to come right out and call you a bullshit artist <laughs> on that one. <laughs> you loved that one. You loved it, didn't you? Oh, my God. It's... I, I I showed this movie to a friend of mine recently and, you know, he was like, wow, there were barely any positive reviews for this thing on Letterboxd. Like, I and, and I was like, yeah, it's pretty controversial. And he's like, no, I think that means it's not. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's consensus. That movie, it, it kind of made a small splash, right? It made a splash and then it kind of... Uh... Yeah, I just yeah that was slinked out on, on a there. grease trail. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly I what mean, happened. I, I, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Oh I, man! But I guess not that many people have my sense of humor. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Aggressively disgusting right. and fucked up. What are you right. gonna do? <laughs> I'm like, what? Do people don't like this, really? No. What's wrong with you all? Back, back to the business at hand. My bad. Today we're talking about. Episode six of the first season of The Sopranos, entitled Pax Soprano. Pax Soprana. Ah, Soprana. Like Thank uh, you. Pax Romana. There yeah, we yeah, go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting episode. This is a question that I had for you. Do you think that you could watch this episode? Like if you were going to tell someone, hey, get into The Sopranos. Great show. By the way, you could probably start with episode five and go on to episode six. Do you think that would work? So you're saying you think that college would be like such a strong standalone episode to bring someone in. And then this episode essentially acts as a reset. Almost. Yeah. I, I guess so. I mean, the flip side of it is you just don't get any of the, the character buildup with like junior mm -hmm. or the crew who've yeah. been absent for a bit now. You know, mm -hmm. you see like Chris and Big Pussy briefly. Yeah. Ollie's not even in this one. And mm -hmm. it, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I feel like not having those guys is is huge. Right. And it is. though. It's very strange because it is restarting the entire serialized tr structure of the season mm -hmm. again. But it's also setting it up in such a way that from here it can diverge into a bunch of sort of standalone experience experience yeah, yeah. yeah. this feels like i mean obviously you're not going to get a ton of backstory you're going to miss out on like you said that that first mini arc but you could just kind of pick up from there and i i think you could make an argument that you not a good argument but you could say hey start from episode five or six you'll miss a chunk of stuff but you could carry on for the remainder of the season i think and be okay with it 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 definitely feels like a hard reset mm -hmm. in in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting episode too, man. I mean, it's it's very unusual compared to what we've seen, and yeah. I think kind of from where the show goes because it's a busy episode. It covers so much ground in terms of relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, it it really upsets the status quo, but then creates a new status quo mm -hmm. by the end, where you know we can go into various characters and not be so worried about like the overarching plot for a while yeah it's it's a strange one yeah but it gets a lot done and i think it does it in <clears throat> such an effortless way it's very smooth yeah you don't feel like you're being guided through this complex 
arc with a ton of moving parts, a ton of continuity. It just it just feels like an episode that's almost day in the life stuff. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you're you're covering so much ground. There's there's so much dramatic push and pull in it too, especially with the Tony Melfi thing. Yeah, absolutely. Which we will definitely yeah. get into. There's oh a, yeah, there's a lot there. There is a lot there. Oh boy. Just like as a brief recap, um, welcome to the reign of Junior Soprano, right? All mm. hail Junior. Long may he reign. Absolutely. <laughs> Guys got it. He is the big man on campus, as Mikey Polis announces. Junior Soprano is the new boss, and he ain't respecting new, or excuse me, old arrangements, as he put it. Yeah, it's so funny how Mikey comes in with the brutality and the <laughs> swagger yeah. and you really think that he's repping something more substantial <laughs> than Junior, <laughs> who is already just like flailing, making terrible decisions, yeah. pissing everybody off. Yep. And he's just so, you know, mercurial. And it's like, this guy, really? Th yeah. This is <laughs> this is the big cheese. Are you kidding yeah. me? That's what yeah. we got going on here. So, yeah, it, Junior is making big decisions. He's making terrible decisions. Uh, he's mm -hmm. taxing Hesh. He is whacking drug dealers that actually happen to be pretty good earners. All this stuff is upsetting the Capos, who would really appreciate it and come to be comfortable with the old way of doing things under Jackie April. Um, the guys call on Tony, obviously, because he's kind of the de facto boss, right? And more in, in, in action than actually in title. And so he actually turns to Johnny Sack to help smooth things over um, by negotiating a sit down between Hesh and Junior. First appearance of Johnny Sack. Absolutely. That's in Curatola. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's a great character. I like he's him. He's such an awesome character. Mm -hmm. That first scene with him in the restaurant, he's so much classier, so much more well-adjusted yes. than the Jersey guys. You can yes. tell that they just have their shit figured out. He really, even at the mm -hmm. end of that scene where he sends over that little gift, that little cake to Carmela and Tony, and he just holds yeah. up his glass, and he just gives a little wink, and he just like <laughs> slinks away. It's right. perfect. I love it. Uh, and meanwhile, so like Carm is melting down. She's having this really emotional moment. Tony's completely overwhelmed. He doesn't yeah. know what the fuck to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's Johnny so Sack just over there, like little I, salute, I know you know? Exactly. And I'm out. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so even as this is happening, um, Tony is really failing in his personal life to connect with the women who have been a part, a big part of his life. So he's failing to connect with Livia, um, we've seen that over several episodes. He's struggling to connect with Carm, and he's even struggling to connect with uh, Irina. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so he can't even make that connection with her. And as he is trying to deepen these relationships with these women in his life, a lot of that just gets transferred straight over to uh, his intimate connection with Melfi. Um, and at the same time that you know he's expressing his feelings for her, his attraction to Melfi, he is having her be stalked and watched by the corrupt detective, the one and only Detective Macasian. Back Most, again. Just back again. Back again. <laughs> Looking uh, schlubbier I, I, than ever. Yes, he's so gross. Oh, I, I got man. a question for you in a moment, but yeah. uh, just to get to, to finish this up. Yeah, the episode ends with a, a great reveal, um, mm. which is that the feds are closing in and they are weaving a web around the New Jersey mob. Um, and it's quite a sophisticated operation. Um, yeah. And that's how the episode ends. It's great. Love that. Love that. Moment. First appearance of the FBI. Yeah, yeah. it's Luke good Claire. stuff. It, I, I've got a question for you. Who yeah. is your least favorite character so far? Oh, see, that's so tough because with the Sopranos, as we've said, there are so many reprehensible characters. Right. And it's like, who's my least favorite in terms of I, I hate them as a character or mm -hmm. who's my least favorite in terms of effectiveness as a uh character slash performance i would say drama which okay. one are you going for i'm saying i hate them as a character because of how reprehensible they are oh man that's tough dude i mean vin is he's a pretty obvious choice i don't know <laughs> i don't know i guess just because of knowing like his fate later in the season i do feel a little bit bad for him mm -hmm. but it is interesting how one of the most just obviously disgusting terrible characters is the the one representation of local law enforcement on yeah, the show which yeah. hey fair enough mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that checks out mm -hmm. i mean i really only asked you that question just mm. so i could say yeah and mccasian is the most disgusting character so far <laughs> in the show 
He's so gross. Can't stand him. Can't <laughs> he is, stand him. He's gross, but he's pathetic. Yeah, I guess in a way, um, Livia really feels like the embodiment of evil more than any other character. Mm-hmm. It's hard to hate her because she's this sweet old lady on the face of it, you know? Right. right. And that's how she gets away with shit, clearly. Tony's like, come on, it's my mother. She's a sweetie pie. And meanwhile, she is literally demonic in her motivation. She really is, man. She is pure evil. She is. Yeah. So what'd you clock about the episode, man? Well, like you were saying about, uh, you know, Tony kind of flailing, trying to keep these various relationships he has with all of the women in his life stable and they're anything but... The show really paints a picture of all of these female characters having a lot of power and a lot of authority over him. Mm -hmm. They basically all order him around in their ways. They basically all have achieved a status quo where they are in charge. They're calling the shots. Mm -hmm. Everyone from Livia, (laughs) he brings her the biscuit and she's finally like not just straight up rejecting it she's mm-hmm. like oh with almonds all right right but then at the end when she's like bring the cookies right and it's such an order it comes from such a place of authority down to carm she's really like so in her unhappy. way very much ordering him around too it's it's a little more subtle with her but i don't know it's it's tougher to parse with carm but mm-hmm. i do feel that she wears the pants in their relationship basically too and even arena you know who it's such a limited form of control that she has it's just take all my clothes off because i want to fuck now right and then run into the bathroom when i'm angry right you know it's such a little contained thing but she is still essentially calling the shots you know in their moments together Mm -hmm. and so the one person who Tony doesn't have that level of relationship with is Melfi. And he's desperately trying to control the relationship with Mm -hmm. the coffee, Mm -hmm. stealing the car and fixing it, all of this stuff. It seems like that's the one female relationship where he thinks he might still be able to exert some sort of power Mm -hmm. and it's so obviously not it's so obviously she is she is so far ahead of him Mm -hmm. and the first time when she tolerates the coffee but you already know she doesn't want it she doesn't want him bringing gifts and then she has to address it the second time Mm -hmm. and it's like dude you are not in control here man. you're not yeah Yeah. he's just out of he's just out of his out of his league out of his depth you gandolfini's so good i mean when he is really like in this schoolboy crush mode with her. Mm-hmm. It's really hard not to feel for him. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Melfi. Do you, do we want to just go ahead and hop into that? Like what happens with that? That the Melfi grade, the Melfi grade. Whole, I mean, this is, this is the crucial Melfi episode. I think it is. Yeah. Her therapy getting yeah. weird, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Like, let me just yeah. go ahead and hop into that. I, I, I would say Melfi does, at least in the first and second sessions, because actually he only has two sessions with her, right? It's very chopped up. I think it's at least three. Okay. The first one, it's yeah. totally appropriate. The second one... I would say is where actually maybe it's the third one. I take that back. The second one, I think she tries to do te- like the textbook right thing, which is to kind of just like maybe kind of deescalate this. She, she's very neutral, mm-hmm. you know, when he is like coming on to her, like she's trying to reflect it back and make him think about, you know, why am I doing this? Where is this coming from? But by the time she gets to the third session with Tony and he's basically kind of like wink, wink, no, I didn't steal your car. Like, why would mm-hmm. anyone do that? And he's crushing hard. He's crushing man. hard on he's her. He's got those puppy dog eyes. Yeah. And, yeah. and she knows. And she knows what's going on there. She's not dumb. Mm-hmm. That is where I would say this episode, like this season, takes a very definitive turn into just like a very not accurate depiction of therapy. Like, I don't think that there's mm-hmm. any therapist that would be like, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this, this client on my caseload. Right. This is not going to happen. Not going to yeah. happen. I guess the rebuttal, you know, not that I'm trying to argue this from a point of knowledge, because you you know far better than I about this stuff. But Lorraine Bracco, in her performance, she has all of these moments where she's smiling, where she just seems taken in by him. She seems you definitely get a sense that there is a mutual attraction, that she is 
pushing aside because in her actual interaction with him, she's totally professional, mm-hmm. but they really play with that line. And I think yeah. they especially, you know, pick takes where she's really smiley mm-hmm. or giggly, the Very way that she laughs at his jokes yeah. in this episode. You just get the sense that there's a little something more going on there. Yeah. And when he goes to kiss her, she doesn't in any way return the affection, but she's smiling you see that little moment where she understands what about what's about to happen and Mm -hmm. she's not afraid she's not disgusted she's not she almost seems like she has to tamp down her own enjoyment Mm. of it interesting am i am i reading too much into that do you you think she was just overwhelmed and she smiled just sort of out of oh this is i think it's possible and weird i think so i think so and the reason why i say that is because i this isn't the first time that he's flirted with her no in fact i think maybe in the first or second episode tony talks about how um how his mother and his parents would have liked it if he had gotten with someone like her i think that's the phrase that he uses and he kind of looks at her that's in the first episode episode, right and he kind of looks at her and he's kind of you know kind of smiling kind of you know making eyes that sort of thing and she just Mm -hmm. kind of she just does not respond to that she does not pick up on that she does not ride that wavelength at all right Um, right. and so part of me thinks she's just kind of like all right this is weird again so i'm just gonna kind of gonna be as neutral as possible I'm going to be as professional as possible here. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's but interesting I mean, though. These things do happen too. They do, right? Where they do. Relationships start between therapists and and clients. It like... is highly frowned upon. Mm. It is. Oh yeah, oh, yeah it is <laughs> not highly encouraged. frowned upon. Not encouraged. <laughs> you can you can lose your license for mm-hmm. starting a relationship with a client, yeah. especially during treatment. Yeah, and so I, I yeah. Just leave it at that. Yeah, and she doesn't seem like someone who would actually take that kind of professional risk. She's way too put together. No. And just seems way too smart and considered in all of her personal life, you know, choices to to ever like let it get to that point. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. But yeah. yeah, I mean, they do a very good job of almost leading you on through her performance to where you're like, is there, is there that moment of her like being intrigued with this guy beyond a professional capacity? I think it seems like it. Yeah. I I don't know if I would say it's romantic, but I would say she's definitely intrigued by him. Yeah. Um, That's what I think is going on there. And I do think that the episode does have a pretty good depiction of transference, just the concept of transference there. Mm -hmm. Um, Him taking his, desire for intimacy with these other women and just like projecting it onto her, um, onto Melfi. I think that that's very well done. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's just so mixed up. Otherwise he's, he's suffering from impotence. He's having these sex dreams, you know, I I really like the dreams in this episode. They're Uh, great. I think they improve on the dream in episode four, even especially the first one where he's he's singing the uh, non diegetic music. Right. I thought I thought it was so interesting how when they cut into the dream, suddenly the sheets on the bed are black. Yes. Yeah. Like this dark. It's a different bedroom almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same headboard. It seems like. Yeah, like the the bedroom just transformed kind of. And I thought it was interesting because the the shape of the woman under the sheets, and we don't know yet that it's going to be Melfi, who's, you know, giving him the blowjob. Mm-hmm. The form of her body, because she's covered with this like black, like satiny sheet, looks kind of disturbing. Yeah. There's a certain thing where it's like, this is this unknowable person. And it's a little creepy it's weird it's creepy the other thing that is creepy about that dream sequence i think is when she starts to speak it's not arena's voice but she's like speaking like an eastern european dialect i think it is arena's voice is it arena's voice okay if she definitely seems dubbed by someone Mm -hmm. yeah and i would yeah that just like that jarring juxtaposition of melfi saying one thing but you hearing another it's very mm-hmm. Lynchian. It's very weird. Um, yeah. It kind of creeps you out. I kind of like it, though. It's kind of cool. Oh, it's an awesome scene, mm-hmm. for sure. Did you pick up on um, the connection between Hesh and the music that's playing at the very beginning of that sequence? No. So I thought it was interesting that right before 
that scene, I'm pretty sure Hesh is talking about how he got a lot of money from producing this music group. And I think Tony responds and says, no, like you didn't write this song. It was basically five black kids that like wrote this song and you got rich off of it. And then like within like a few minutes, they're playing this music. I think the song is called What Time Is It? That's what Tony's singing. And it's written by the Jai Five. It's just like this black uh, doo-wop group. And it made me wonder, like, is that where Hesh ties in? Like, did he have involvement in making this song? Just thought that was a weird little Easter egg there. Mm -hmm. Yeah definitely seems like a group that dealt with some of these predatory practices by the music industry mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. huh man just wondering about that it's a good call many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the uh, the directing in the episode? I guess we should get into that a little bit uh this is the first episode directed by alan taylor who goes on to be a huge director uh for hbo Mm -hmm. he directs a ton of sopranos episodes a ton of um game of thrones he does some rome and some deadwood as well um wow okay he had come out of homicide life and on the street and oz and he also directed a bunch of sex in the city so he was just in heavy rotation as an episode director at hbo he does this episode and then he doesn't direct the Sopranos again until season four. Wow. And okay. then in the last block of shooting that six, a six B he directs six episodes more than anybody else. Wow. So for the end of the show, they really leaned on him. And I mean, he did Kennedy and Heidi and mm-hmm. the blue comet, like big episodes for mm-hmm. the show, you know, big in terms of scope, big in terms of event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now he's going to be directing the uh, the Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. Oh. So he's really become sort of the the directorial voice he's the of the show. Yeah, yeah. Just what I noticed was the the hard cuts in the episode. I don't know if that's something that you picked up on, but he definitely. I think at the very very opening of the episode, you know, there's that scene with uh, Tony and Vin McKazian. As soon as they're finished talking about Dr. Melfi, there's the hard cut to her just like opening the door, like that close up on her face, you know, she's and she's very welcoming. And I thought that was very interesting, the transition from them talking about her and just like the feeling that, you know, Melfi's being stalked. She's this innocent, very wholesome woman. And, you know, you, you kind of feel for her, I think, when you see her face, it just it, it juxtaposed to these two men who were talking, you know, talking about just like following her and, and stalking her. And then the second time, um, that they use kind of an interesting cut was right after the restaurant scene, they're talking at the restaurant about, you know, whether or not they're going to go stay at the hotel. And Carm says no. And there's that hard cut directly to Tony and Carmela coming into the garage, uh, driving into the garage. And it sounds a lot like someone being led into a jail cell and having the door closed huh. behind them. And I don't know if that like, it just, it's just what it sounded like, like, Oh, yeah, it just sounds like someone going into the clink there. There was some good sound design all throughout this episode. I like your thought about the the really hard cutting and especially the sort of match cutting yeah. thematically across scenes. What I noticed was just that he tends to mix it up in terms of how they get into a scene. Mm-hmm. Like the shot that starts a scene is very unpredictable in this episode. The um, overhead. Yeah, you have mm-hmm. like the overhead of the card table and then you cut to like a long tracking shot 
uh, laterally following Chris into the mm -hmm. pork store. Mm -hmm. And then when you jump out of the pork store, you're in the back seat of Tony's car, mm -hmm. looking past him through the windshield, uh, I think at Hesh. And it's just like every single one of these scenes starts in a different way with a different type of shot. Yeah. And so it kind of kind of makes you feel like things are constantly moving, but you don't know how you're going to get into the next scene. Mm hmm. And I, I think that's a really strong thing as far as uh, just keeping the pace up. I think this episode doesn't have like the fluidity of Alan Coulter's directing, mm -hmm. but it feels a lot more natural and a lot more effortless than any of the other guest of the previous episodes yeah. so far, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, he's had an interesting career, Taylor. So after this, before he comes back to The Sopranos, he went and he did a very big episode of Deadwood called Here Was a Man, which what uh, is that? that is the episode where Wild Bill Hickok, uh, oh. Keith Carradine gets shot oh, at the wow. card game. Huge episode. I mean, I think Deadwood fans would put it all yeah. near the top of their list. Mm -hmm. And I think off the back of that episode, he started to get really like big budget complex shows with a lot of world building you know mm -hmm. he went on to rome and he went on to game of thrones then after that he started this career in in big budget blockbuster films where he really seemed to sort of flame out with like thor the dark world and uh Oof. terminator genesis you oh, know wow. he okay. made some some stinkers he made some stinkers there, there. wow yeah and my feeling about both this episode of The Sopranos and the episode of Deadwood is that his strength lay much more in the small character scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's really good with performance. He's really good just with like livening things up so that you're getting all this character interaction, but it doesn't feel talky and dry. Right. But uh, I just never thought he was a natural fit for the big set piece based mm -hmm. stuff as much. Curious, that's like, kind of... I, I, yeah. go ahead go ahead no no i was just gonna say like that's how the sopranos kind of uses him too when they bring him back like it's for the much more big event episodes i don't know i just i, I don't think it was his forte as much certainly not like with game of thrones or fucking terminator genesis you know that, that's what i was going to ask is like I'm, I'm curious about which episodes of game of thrones he directed um because i'm wondering if those were like the bigger episodes or whether they were just like the more intricate uh person to person those types of episodes you know, I think they were more sort of the quieter character-based episodes of Game mm -hmm. of Thrones, too. Like, he directed a lot of episodes in the first season. He directed the season two opener. And honestly, I thought those were sort of the episodes where the directing hadn't hit the right wavelength for that mm -hmm. show. The show mm -hmm. didn't really feel epic yet. It felt like sort of TV budget fantasy it was kind of after he stopped working on the show so much that it started to really feel like a legit fantasy world that was expansive. Man. But at the same time, you direct Game of Thrones and people are going to be like, oh, sure, give him of a Of course, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this guy. And, uh, you know, Thor the Dark World, I mean, basically, like, that movie was taken away from him. <laughs> Not, not, um, you know, not that I think he thought of it as his magnum opus that was getting ripped from his arms or anything. Right. It's not like that was like his magnificent Ambersons over here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then after that, Terminator Genesis just feels like the complete collapse where it's just like this guy does not have it. Is that the last film that he directs? I think he mostly went back to TV after that. I think he went back to TV and sort of tried to regroup. Mm, okay. Wow, he also directed... Okay, yeah, he did uh, Kennedy and Heidi. Yeah. Wait, no, he also directed an episode of Mad Men. Oh, yeah. Which Mad Men did? Oh, he did a Smoke bunch Smoke gets of, in your eyes, Oh, man. he did the pilot of yeah. Mad Men. Wow. Yeah, man, his oh, strength is... Room? His strength is definitely... I mean, if you Character directed stuff. that, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That makes Absolutely. so much sense. So, uh... <laughs> I guess since, you know, we brought up Terminator Genesis a few times and that's one of the like just dumpster fires mm -hmm. of franchise filmmaking that I'm consistently fascinated by. Should I, should I get into my Jai Courtney theory? Should, go I, ahead. should I just, just bring go this ahead. in? Just do it. <laughs> you're so resigned. Just do it. I know you're going to. <laughs> okay. So this actually ties in with uh, another show, which I love and I think you um, begrudgingly tolerate. That would be uh, the uh, esteemed stars program, Spartacus. Oh, boy. Nay, oh, Spartacus, yes. Blood and Sand. Oh, yes. The most yes. violent porno of all time. 
that text will forever be in my mind as like Phil's first and last ruling on the show. Uh, because I, I was sort of watching it as like a, a trash show, a real, you know, guilty pleasure, quote yeah. unquote. And uh, I was getting more and more into it across the season. And I was like, this, this show is actually getting really good. And I started telling you and various mm -hmm. other friends about it and you all came back with like are you fucking kidding me man <laughs> or like you're like i tried man i watched one episode of that dog shit <laughs> but you actually got into it i yeah. did i'm not even gonna lie i got yeah. into it i watched all three seasons okay so so this is actually kind of a sad story the the story of what happened with that show's lead andy whitfield is yeah incredibly tragic he passed away of cancer between seasons, actually. Mm -hmm. um, they ended up shooting a, a half season just to try and give him some time to possibly recover. And then uh, when it was clear he wasn't going to, they, they recast and they mm -hmm. kept the show going without him. And uh, I thought the rest of the show was still pretty strong. It's quality. In, yeah. in spite of such a traumatic thing happening yeah. on a production level. But so Andy Whitfield and Jai Courtney were best friends. After Jai Courtney, spoilers, was killed off on the show, they asked Andy Whitfield about it. And he's like, well, I was so broken up about it, but he's like hanging out on my couch right now, man. You know, we're not going to stop chilling just because of this. Wow. And the scene in which Jai Courtney gets killed mm. by Andy Whitfield's mm -hmm. Spartacus is incredibly emotional. Very emotional. It's actually an amazing scene. Yeah. With really, really strong acting it's on both of their parts. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if Jai Courtney, being such a good friend of his, knew about his diagnosis before anyone else. And uh, some of that emotion mm, leaked into it. Seeped into that scene. It really seems like it because, I mean, they're saying goodbye to each other and it is so charged. You're right. And Jai Courtney on the rest of the show is pretty much giving a Jai Courtney performance, which right. is to say it's, it's pretty flat, you it know, is, on the face of it. Yeah. That scene is so intense so emotional and at the time you would just think well yeah he's leaving the show and it charges everybody up but i wonder mm -hmm. if there's that added element to it and then i would bet any amount of money that scene was the main scene on his reel going around to every casting agency and they watched that and they said this guy's incredible mm -hmm. he's jacked he's six foot eleven and, you know, he looks like a, a Greco-Roman god and he can act this right. well. He can right. deliver this much of a dramatic performance, you know? Cast him immediately. Exactly. And he was getting cast in every Everything. single action movie left and right. And the American public is like, Jai Courtney, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure I ordered a spicy chicken sandwich. I don't know what this Jai Courtney <laughs> is you're giving me instead. I heard the Courtney's and, are very tasty. Right, right. And I just, I imagine that that particular clip and the whole backstory to it was the reason why Jai Courtney was forced down our throats over and over again for, you know, a couple many of years. Years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. kind of he and Sam Worthington. I believe that was the oh, other guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, of um, what was this? Australians, man. Yeah, man. Man. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe he's good now. Who knows? I, I mean, shit. When's the last time he was in anything? Right? I don't know, man. I do not know. Yeah. Oh, I did see him in something actually, but I can't talk about it. Yeah, we shouldn't something talk about in it. production. We yeah, shouldn't yeah, talk yeah. about it. No, yeah. no, no, we all can't right, do let's it. Let's get back to the surprise. Yeah, okay. we got to get back to the. Yeah. So, I mean, all right, Junior. Mm. He's the yeah. boss in title and name only. This guy has <sighs> no idea what he is doing. But he's throwing around his power. Now, he really is. Know? He oh. really is. But like the scene when they're all at, you know, Satrials and they're all sitting outside drinking their coffee, having their espresso. They're all talking about yeah. all of the goings on, all of the new goings on within uh, the business. And Junior, like just that shot of him drinking either coffee or water. And he just looks so disinterested. He could not give a shit about what is happening. Man, that guy. Just doesn't he's know just what he's so doing. easily played man, so easily everyone yeah Livia just comes in and tells him what to do and then he follows through on that uh, she I, she's in a different class like her sitting in that chair and just 
suggesting what he's going to do next. You're mm-hmm. like, he has no authority in the situation. None at, at all. all. None yeah. at all. Like, and the fact is he even calls her out on manipulating him and then he just goes through with it anyway. I think my favorite, I think the shot that is most emblematic of Junior is the shot of him standing in his boxers with the blazer on. And he's just really irate and upset at the fact that that young man like uh, had committed suicide. And he just looks so impotent. He's just standing there furious in his boxers. And you're just like, I can't take this guy seriously. Oh, and he talks about the drugs. This poison can't yeah. be for the kids. And it's like, he's still going by the Godfather playbook of mm-hmm. like, oh no, the drugs are, mm-hmm. are not cool. We shouldn't be in on that side mm-hmm. of it. And it's like, you were in the wrong friggin' decade, man. Yeah, the wrong man. century here, Oof. really. Yeah. Al Sapienza as Mikey Palvis, again in that scene, incredible when he just delights in talking about this kid's head bashing against the rocks over and over. He's like salivating over the details of this kid's death while the grandfather is right there trying not to cry. It's so inappropriate. It's great. Um, But that did make me think about him. Like Al Sapienza, it's funny. Apparently, David Chase uh, sort of wrote based on his performance of character. He was like, you know, Al is like smiling and like smirking all the time. So he incorporated mm. that into his character mm. and it really makes him seem like a psychopath that yeah. he just can't stop smiling while murdering people, yeah. talking about death, all yeah. of this stuff. And he's just compulsively grinning all the time, giggling with yeah. these like really short quips. He's like little rhyming quips that are meant to like be very pithy or like, you know, very funny. And yeah, yeah, he is. He's cackling like a maniac throughout all of this and just really gleeful throughout all the violence and and death. Oh, so gleeful when he's tossing that uh, drug dealer off the bridge. Yeah, such a good time. He is enjoying Um, himself. It's funny, though, because like Al Sapienza, he acts all the time. He pops up in so much stuff. He's usually playing like a judge or a mm-hmm. general or something like that. But he's just like all over all these procedurals. And I've, I've seen him pop up here and there. And I got to be honest, I feel like he is basically never good after The Sopranos. <laughs> oh, he's man. so good on this season. And then I feel like just no one else has ever harnessed what he does again and i wonder if in a way david chase was so smart in seeing like you sort of see through this guy normally Mm -hmm. but if i make it that he's just a complete sociopathic monster and i make it that all of his attempts at human expression or human behavior just come across as like false and gross you know before you yeah yeah that that he was able to like really position him to give a great performance yeah so this is the first episode that uh frank renzulli writes he had written a few he writes a few more in this season correct yeah he writes uh legend of tennessee multisante uh a hit is a hit and nobody knows anything i wonder Um, how he came onto the show i mean because i feel like he has he's known for having a particularly large imprint on the show. I would say like his name comes up, like when, again, um, a couple of other writers like uh, green and Burgess are talking, like they always seem to mention him uh, throughout the, throughout the production. Yeah. And I think a lot of the cast knew him too. I think he was just very active in sort of the, the New York scene and he, he becomes an executive producer on the show Mm -hmm. starting in the second season, but then he doesn't continue with the show after that. And honestly, his credits kind of drop off a little bit after that. So okay. I don't know, maybe he uh, he just uh, got more into producing or something like that. But uh, yeah, the, this is kind of his his big time on the show. Honestly, in a way, the biggest influence that he had on The Sopranos was that he got Terrence Winter hired on the show. Right. Uh, Terrence Winter comes on in season two. Basically, Renzulli just kept recommending him to Chase. Chase didn't want to hire Terrence Winter because he had given Chase a spec script about like wise guys growing up in either like Jersey or the Mm. Bronx or something like that. And apparently Mm. Chase just hated this script. And so he didn't want to bring him in. And uh, Renzulli just kept vouching for him and said, look, I know this guy can write for the show. So he, he hires him on for season two. And then from there, basically like, Terrence Winter becomes one of the biggest writers on the show. Yeah. Of its run. He yeah. wrote 19 episodes of it. Wow. 
yeah, and he was an executive producer from season four on. Uh, and then he goes on to create Boardwalk Empire after that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Another so, show, another HBO. That was a hit. That was a hit yeah, on HBO. Yeah. For a while, it was the flagship, I would say. Flagship it program. It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think about Boardwalk Empire? What's your read on it? I think it's got great casting. Mm. And I think it's one of those shows that wanted to say something important or like, yeah, I think it's one of these shows that really wanted to say something important or pithy and it didn't quite always hit the mark. Like it felt as though it never hit the way that Breaking Bad did and it never hit the way that Mad Men did. And I I don't even know why. I I can't quite put my finger on why. I'll just put it that way. Um, I I thought it was so interesting you said flagship because it felt like that so much. mm -hmm. You know, it, it comes in and it's, pilot directed by Scorsese Mm -hmm. tons of money being thrown at this thing you got Buscemi starring Mm -hmm. and it just feels like HBO was saying we are gonna make this our next big hit our next big thing and it just never was the big deal that they were selling it as Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's it's sad I I'm talking so much shit this episode geez but uh (laughs) like I love Steve Buscemi I do too think he's incredible i thought he was awesome on the sopranos uh, i really like his character and the whole arc that he creates in season five but to watch boardwalk empire you're just like oh he is a character actor mm-hmm. he's not a leading man not a leading man that was so my feeling going into that show is like he does not have whatever charisma whatever sort of magnetism to pull off this character as the center of the show. Mm-hmm. And the show even sort of like leans into that where yeah. it's like, well, Nucky Thompson, like, yeah, he's the the leader of this, this whole criminal enterprise, but nobody really likes him. Everybody mm-hmm. essentially tolerates him. And mm-hmm. he's just kind of lame enough that everyone's like, uh, you know, how much of a problem can you have with this mm-hmm. guy? And that's yeah. basically how he survives. Mm-hmm. It's such a bummer, man, because I before that had always been like, ah, oh, Buscemi. I wish someone would give him a starring role. And to see him in that, I'm like, no, he really is just better as, uh, you know, a side dish. Maybe he's, I mean, do you think he could take on, I could see him being very successful taking on Bill Macy's role in Shameless. Maybe, maybe. Or I always thought he would be good as like a really offbeat romantic comedy leading man. Sure. In like a like a Miranda July movie or something very quirky like that. Mm-hmm. I, I maybe like being a gangster just wasn't the good fit. Might not you know, because by contrast, fit. like Gandolfini, he is so charismatic. He is so effortlessly watchable, man. You're gonna follow him through anything that he does, you know? Yeah. It's such a testament that he's been doing so much creepy shit to Melfi throughout all these episodes especially this one and yet you don't hate him you're yeah. you're feeling for him that he's he's falling for her in such a way man it, it's wild how the show pulls that trick it's like a magic trick really it is absolutely yeah. favorite episode excuse me favorite scene i mean both of the dreams really stand out mm-hmm. the second dream too where it's like he's taking a piss and the shower door opens and it's Melfi and uh, oh man. Yeah. You just know how, how deep he is into this. (laughs) Actually, I really like this. Like when he wakes up from that dream and Carmela turns over and she just goes, you want some sex? And he's just like, nah, just go back to bed. (laughs) I love that moment. (laughs) She offers it up. She does. She's trying so hard. You get the feeling she would be into it. She's like, all right, let's just get it on. Let's do this. And he's just like, nah, I can't even. Sorry. But she, she brings it up. Like she's asking, like if he wants more breadsticks with his his meal. Or do you want to go out to eat? Are we going (laughs) out to Olive Garden? Are we going to Vesuvio's? Which one are we doing? It's so, yeah, just part of the routine. Mm -hmm. Oh man. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the the last scene with her and Tony by the pool is really great. Mm-hmm. I love the the crane that brings it in. It's a really mm-hmm. nice, like, subtle crane where instead of like pulling back to some sort of god's eye view shot, it's just bringing us down a little bit past him mm-hmm. and over to him and Carm and kind of like hovering over the pool. But you yeah. don't even think about it. It just like leads you into the scene really nicely. And uh, I think their chemistry in that moment is. Maybe, so maybe well. it might be an all time high chemistry wise, like for them on the whole show, mm-hmm. honestly. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so good. It's her just continuing to like hit it out of the park after college. You know, I love her scene with the uh, father, Phil father, too. Phil. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's really crushing on that? her still oh, too. Dude, yeah. Like, in that scene when she drops, I forgot how she phrases it. Yeah, Tony has all of these urges. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Tony has all of these urges. He's after the women. He's chasing after him. You know how this is, Father Phil. You know how it is when guys get the thirst. Mm-hmm. And the look <laughs> on his face. Yes. He looks so ashamed and mm-hmm. slightly indignant. Yup. As if to say, what do you mean my thirst? You were in on this too about a couple of weeks ago. Don't try to act like it was just my problem. Oh, and he he really gets vindictive with her after he that does. Yeah. about divorce and all of that. And you're not without sin. Yep. And you can just feel the ire from her rejection mm-hmm. just pouring over with him. Yeah, uh, that's a really good scene. It's a but, great uh, scene. No, no, I've just decided my favorite scene. It's it's such a brief scene. I don't even really understand the context of it, but like the wine dinner and the photographs being taken yep. and paparazzi by exhibit, like an instrumental form playing over it. That is just such a cool, cool yep. moment. The mm-hmm. way it leads into the FBI. It, I, I love that. Uh, um, what I was saying about like not fully understanding the context is I don't know why they're just now having sort of the, the junior is boss, mm-hmm. like minting ceremony, because it implies that it's been at least a month right. since he took over. So you'd think they would have done that already, but I don't know. Maybe it takes that long to get all the New York guys in the room too. I have no idea. But uh, yeah, that, that scene is so cool, man. I I, love that, that piece of music too. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I I think uh, I would have to agree with you. I think that that's probably my favorite uh, scene in the episode too. Love everything about it. The montage, the black and whites, where you know that they're just taking photos of them. Yeah. And then when they cut over to the FBI and I think it's, the feds had been mentioned briefly in other scenes in other episodes, and they always kind of feel like ghosts around the edges of the story. And then you realize, oh, wait, no, the entire time that we've been watching this show, the past four or five episodes, I think obviously they had been at the uh, at uh, Jackie April's burial, and you kind of see them there, but it, you don't really get the scope of how large their uh, their operation is. And it's kind of a, a holy shit moment, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I love also, yeah, as you said, the use of black and white photography, mm-hmm. which I don't know if those photos would actually be in black and white. Seems like they wouldn't, but they just idea. look so great. You know, those mm-hmm. like glossy, high contrast, black and white shots of everyone. It just gives it a bit of that that Godfather sheen, just like yeah. a touch of the mob romanticism to really sell home like mm-hmm. the gravitas of the family and then the FBI. Yeah. Yep watching over them i do wonder too so there had definitely been episode ending musical montages on tv prior to this but Mm -hmm. this one in its form does feel like it's kind of at the start of peak tv really taking that that idea and running with it you know you would see it on more episodic shows where you have a ton of cast members and you want to just like cut into every cast member Mm -hmm. probably without dialogue and just show like a little bit of, oh, well, what's going on with them? But like this taking it to a place where it's more part of this overarching story uh, and it's more about like mood and atmosphere setting, but also like, you know, drawing up all the loose ends of the episode. I, I thought, gosh, this is kind of the start of that trend yeah. you know, for prestige TV. I would say The Wire made pretty good use of montage. Like every oh, yeah. final episode of a season of The Wire would mm-hmm. have a montage at the very, very end. And it would often be just kind of like tying up loose ends. Like, yeah, no dialogue, nothing like that. Um, with some some a memorable song played over it so yeah yeah just zooming way out that one walking on gilded splinters Mm -hmm. at the end of season four is incredible yeah so i gave melfi a c oh yeah i did Uh, i I had to go low she she should have uh put the kibosh on it huh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah shut it down just shut it down (laughs) is it time to name that episode man yeah let's do it all right. We're only getting one this time. Just kidding. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Ready? Yeah, man. Okay. Name that episode. Here we go. 
in the 75th episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, oh, shit. Picard is rescued from the Borg while Data meets Borg Picard. Oh, come on, man. Mm. Come on. This is part two of the best of both worlds. Probably the most famous two-parter of all time. There Get out go. of here. All right. There you go. Come on. You got it. You got it. Um, I'm walking in easy. I'm walking in easy. For real. You're, you're leading me down the primrose <laughs> path here. All right. I will say part two is great, but that's probably the best cliffhanger in the history of TV, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even I remember, I think I remember that. Like I was like eight years old seeing oh, part one. I was just like, whoa, same what is dude. happening here? Mind blown. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. In this season one episode of Lost, we learn John Locke's backstory, specifically during a traipse through the island. And uh, writer David Fury was nominated for an Emmy Award for outstanding writing for this episode. Okay. So when we were talking last last week about great episodes of TV of all time and mm -hmm. TV guide had uh, the lost pilot in their top mm -hmm. 10. Mm -hmm. See, I would push out the pilot in favor of this episode. No question. Oh, all right. Yeah. This Which is a uh, walkabout. It is. Ding, 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 ding. Is an incredible episode. I mean, it's, it's definitely the best use they ever came up with for their flashback structure. Right. Yep. Cause, it, and they would just never top the twist of it in mm -hmm. this, you know, mm -hmm. it's so anything amazing. else they did would just seem like they're iterating on this theme of, Oh, you see the whole flashback, but you don't get you don't crucial know what's information. Really going on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What an amazing episode. Though, so, man. Good. Oh, so good. So good. you, Quinn. So good. All right. <laughs> You're doing pretty well today, Alex. Doing all right. Oh, well, you're giving me the most famous I episodes know, with know, the most I famous know. twists of all time. All right. Come on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it after last week where it was just, <laughs> just nonstop brutality. You struggled so hard. The episode of The Wire oh, called man. The Wire. That's right, man. Your teeth were sweating. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> I just never know with you, man. I never know. It's going right. to be just, you know, gentleness or abuse, you know? <laughs> This season two episode of Seinfeld was postponed for one week during the start of the Gulf War. During this episode, George splits with his girlfriend, Marlene, and asks Jerry to retrieve some books from the ex's house. Oh, boy. Season two, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Because, like, season two was the first actual season of the show. It, season one's what, like five episodes? And five honestly, five season episodes? two is only 12. Really? Yeah, didn't know wow. that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I know it starts with uh, an article, right? It's, <laughs> it starts with a V? Of course. Yes. That's every okay. episode. Oh, man. But it's, I don't know. Ah, give me Give me another hint. So I think this this is the pilot, I believe. It's the pilot of, or not the pilot, excuse me. This is the first episode of season two. Oh, the um, first episode? Mm-hmm, yeah. Jeez. And Jerry chooses to then go on the date with the ex-girlfriend. Hmm, hmm, right, 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 right. It's a typical thing that George would be like taking umbrage with. Of course. Is it just called the ex? The ex-girlfriend. Oh my God. You just so said close. it. I just too. said it. Yep. I did. <laughs> yep. You can't throw me off like that by saying uh, the episode yeah. title. Oh man, whatever. You had the wire for the wire last time. Don't even give me that. Get out of here. <laughs> oh man. All right. I mean, I, I give you two out of three. All two right. out of three for All this right. one. Not, not, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll All take right. it. Seinfeld is definitely a, a tough one. Mm -hmm. uh, At yeah. least you always know the first word. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get 50%. You least. will. <laughs> that's still my a failing one. grade, man. Uh, still that's a failing always going to be my hint for a Seinfeld yeah. episode. It's just going to be yeah. like, well, the first word's the. What what season of Seinfeld would you uh, advocate doing? Oh, I know. Is there it's, nine seasons of Seinfeld? Nine or ten? There's There are a lot. There's too there's many. There's a lot. Yeah. I would maybe three. Yeah, I was three. thinking like three or four as mm -hmm. well. You could tell Larry David was pushing the sitcom format for a while mm -hmm. there. And then that's when he really started to get confident in his experimentation. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Cool, man. Well, uh, I guess we should wrap it up then. Yeah. Uh, 
We hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast app you've got. And uh, we'll see you next week for Down Neck. Episode 7. Episode 7. Yeah, man. Can't wait. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please remember to follow or subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. I also want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork, Josh Sullivan for our intro music, and Battlequake for our outro. See you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.